Hey, I'm Greg Johnson. I'm the lead pastor here at Restoration Churchwood Forest. We want to welcome you to our podcast today. Our mission at Restoration is to empower people to become world changers by releasing them into their full potential in the kingdom of God. So that happens in a lot of ways, but on Sunday mornings, we gather together, we worship passionately, and then we open the word of God and we explore the application and the truth of how God's word can be applied to our lives. And so today, I hope that you enjoy this message from God's word. Hey, we don't want this in any way to be a replacement for church. Let it be a supplement for you. But if you don't have a church home, we would love for you to join us any week at 8 o'clock, 945, and 1130. We hope you enjoy the message. Welcome to Restoration. Over the course of this month, as we're leading up to Christmas Eve, we're talking about this whole idea of the prophecy in Isaiah 7, 14. Uh, a virgin will give birth to a son, and his name will be called Emmanuel. We find out in chapter 8 of Isaiah that it is God with us. And then as we move into the gospel of John, he's laying out who God with us is. And if you remember in John chapter one, verse 14, he says this, the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the, the glory, the one and only son who came from the father full of what? Grace and truth. So we see the full embodiment of God is in Jesus, that he is God in the flesh. And we'll see today this whole idea of being full, embodying the fullness of grace and the fullness of truth. And so uh, last week, Gavin did an incredible job of walking us through uh, Jesus, his encounter with Zacchaeus two weeks ago. We saw Jesus, his encounter with the woman at the well and how he, loving, he lovingly restored her. Uh, last week, we saw his encounter with Zacchaeus. I really thought Gavin, honestly, uh, he did not take advantage of a couple of great opportunities, the wee little man. I'm like, dude, you, you should have gone for that. Um, uh, this interaction with Zacchaeus showing the difference between being a reformer and a restorer. Was that not awesome? Spelled it out so beautifully. If you missed it, please go back and listen to it. And so uh, this morning, we're gonna look at an interaction that Jesus had with a woman, John chapter eight, this woman who was caught in the act of adultery. And so it's a complicated passage for several reasons uh, that I'm gonna tease out a bit. But here's what we're gonna see. We're gonna see both justice and mercy on display. And so when we think of grace and truth, uh, mercy is a cousin of grace and, and, and truth, this idea of truth, the justice uh, that needs to be lived out as a result of absolute truth. Uh, we'll see grace and truth, mercy and justice on display. But uh, here's a question that I want you to think about as we walk through the passage today. When faced with injustice or someone's sinful lifestyle, how do you most often respond? When you think about the injustices that you see in the world, when you think about uh, uh, seeing someone's lifestyle that doesn't match up with the purposes of God, how do you most often respond? What is your go-to response? 
super humbling for me as I was thinking about that this week. Um, so there, uh, let, me, let me show you the two, is, two extremes of the responses. So maybe you're a justice warrior, everything's black and white, there's right, there's wrong, there's nothing in between, and so you see things very rigidly, either you're right or you're wrong. Any, any people prone toward justice this morning? It's okay to admit it. Some of you are like, oh, that sounds horrible, <laughs> right? But I mean, uh, maybe you have a justice heart. Maybe it's just like, man, you want to see all the, the, the wrongs in the world righted. And so you're really quick when you see it to jump on it. And then there's the other extreme. You, you ooze mercy and compassion to the point that you overlook justice. That, they, that you're so merciful that you're like, uh, you know, like when, when, uh, when the gospel is presented and there is a talk of a place called hell, it makes you cringe because you're like, how can a loving God ever send anyone there? And you begin to, to really back off of the justice of God in favor of the mercy of God. So can you see those two extremes? Uh, because uh, both of those are extremes that people actually live in. And today we're gonna see Jesus give us a masterclass on the middle ground and what our response should be and how to balance the scales of justice and mercy. And we're gonna see it in this story. And so let me, let me read this story to you. You've probably heard it before. Um, and then I wanna point a few things out. Starting at the end of chapter seven, verse 53, then they all went home. Jesus has been meeting with a group of people but Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. At dawn, he appeared again in the temple courts where all the people gathered around him and he sat down to teach them. The teachers of the law and the Pharisees brought in a woman caught in adultery. They made her stand before the group and said to Jesus, teacher, this woman was caught in the act of adultery and the law of Moses commanded us to stone such women. Now, what do you say? They were using this question as a trap in order to have a basis for accusing him. But Jesus bent down and started to write on the ground with his finger. When they kept on questioning him, he straightened up and said to them, let any one of you who's without sin be the first to throw a stone at her. And he stooped down again and wrote on the ground. At this, those who heard began to go away one at a time, the older ones first, until only Jesus was left with the woman still standing there. Jesus straightened up and asked her, woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? No one, sir, she said then neither do I condemn you, Jesus declared. Go now and leave your life of sin. Okay, so as we're getting into this, if you were reading this from your Bible, you may, it may either be in parenthesis or it may be written smaller and in italics, it is in my Bible. And here's why. Um, there are questions about its validity uh, as well as where it should be placed in scripture. Um, uh, it, it did not appear until 5th century AD, and, and even then it appeared in different places in manuscripts. It, it appeared uh, in John, in Mark, in Luke. And so uh, the validity of the passage early on was questioned, but here's what we know for sure. It made it into the canon. So it was a story that was circulated enough that, that people validated that it was an actual event that happened, but it was unclear who wrote the passage. 
commonly people believe that John did not write this because of some of the verbiage that is used. It's a lot more like the synoptic or same-seeming gospels. Matthew, Mark, and Luke follow a similar narrative and a similar uh, writing style where John is really different where that's concerned. So we're really not sure why um, uh, it is chosen that it's in uh, this place in the Bible. But here's what we do know. It's consistent with the life and ministry of Jesus and it teaches us something really valuable about how to interact. Um, it happens to be one of my favorite passages in all the Bible because, because of one of the things that it teaches us that I'll get to right at the end. Um, and so it was hard for me when I was studying and I'm reading commentary and they're like, well, it's, it's, it's unclear uh, where it's supposed to land in the New Testament. And, and I'm like, oh, well, maybe I shouldn't teach on it. But I feel so convicted that, you know, Jesus spoke in parables all the time. And so we can learn so much from a parable, but I believe that this is an encounter that, that the living Jesus had with a living woman. And so we're gonna tackle it from that perspective this morning. And so we're following the narrative and the narrative is Jesus is uh, uh, teaching a group of people. And then uh, as always, he would teach for a while and then it says he would go away. So he went up onto the Mount of Olives to pray and then he does what Jesus does. He re-engages. And so we find him here in the temple. He's in the temple teaching people. And, and just parenthetically, can you imagine being taught by Jesus? Can you imagine being in the temple in Jerusalem and, and here is this rabbi who is teaching in a way that you've never heard before and teaching with authority that you've never really seen before. And you're like, man, it's almost as if he embodies this. It's almost as if he is an expert on the law like no other rabbi we've ever seen or heard. Man, I envy that, man. I would have loved to have been life on life sitting at the feet of Jesus, hearing him teach. But he's gathered this crowd and then here's what happens next. The teachers of the law and the Pharisees brought in a woman caught in adultery. They made her stand before the group and said to Jesus, teacher, this woman was caught in the act of adultery in the law. Moses commanded us to stone such women. Now, what do you say? They were using this question as a trap in order to have a basis for accusing him. So let's get a picture of this in our mind. She's caught in the act of adultery, which means that she probably is very scantily clad at this point if she has clothes on at all. Maybe they wrapped her in, in, in some kind of covering and they bring her in and I just kind of imagine, they just kind of throw her in front of Jesus. So it says she was standing there, but uh, for the sake of, of getting this image in our mind, just imagine that she's kind of in this puddled heap in front of Jesus in complete shame, can you imagine? Can you imagine if, if you were thrown into the temple where it's the, it's the religious place, right? It's where the religious holy people are and now you are half naked and you're thrown in, in front of a bunch of people and Jesus, who a lot of people knew of Jesus and now she's thrown at the feet of Jesus and her accusers, oh my gosh, Siri, can you hold that for me? Thank you. Please don't take it with you. I'm going to be watching you. <laughs> Go and send no more. Okay. All right. So just imagine with me that here she is, scantily clad, laying at the feet of Jesus, 
And now the teachers of the law and other versions, these scribes and Pharisees, they say to him, hey, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. The law of Moses said that we are required to stone her. I would say in some ways they're saying the law of Moses permits us to stone her. What do you say? Because they're trying to trap Jesus. So there are several problems with how the Pharisees approach Jesus. Uh, first of all, they were using the law completely out of context. So if you look at Deuteronomy 22.22, it says, if a man is found sleeping with another man's wife, both the man who slept with her and the woman must what? Die. You must purge the evil from Israel. If you look back in Leviticus chapter 20, verse 10, again, if a man commits adultery with another man's wife, with the wife of his neighbor, both the adulterer and the adulteress are to be put to death. Okay, so what do we know? Adultery is a big deal. I mean, it's one of the big 10, right? Um, if you remember, 10 commandments, that's, that's one of them. Don't commit adultery. And now in the law of Moses, it's spelled out a little more. Hey, if you're caught, both the man and woman are to be executed. So what's the problem here? Where's the man? She's dragged into the temple she is dragged and now being accused, being shamed, being publicly humiliated, but we don't know where the man is. So today, number one, it's taken out of context. Number two, the Bible is being used as a weapon to support their cause. They're using the law of Moses and they're weaponizing it a weapon against this woman. And so anytime your motive is not drenched in humility and love, there's a problem. Uh, if, if you're just gonna use the Bible as a weapon, something to uh, say or scream or yell or chastise at people, you're just pulling things out. I mean, uh, do you know anybody ever, or maybe you have yourself, use something out of context to make a point? Just know all the time we quote scripture out of context. So many times we quote scripture that we memorize and we'll quote it in a moment. And I've, a lot of times I feel like, you know, uh, Anigo Montoya, you know, from the Princess Bride, you know. <laughs> you keep using that word. I do not think it means what you think it means. But how often do we use uh, scripture out of context and we weaponize it so that we can level accusations at someone else? So secondly, this girl's just a pawn. She's just a pawn in a game. They're trying to trap Jesus and, and now they're kind of practicing an end justify the means approach. Like if Jesus had just said, oh yeah, good point guys, go ahead. They would have probably just stoned her and been done with it. If she dies, she dies. And so there are several problems with the way they are approaching this. And so I, I, as I was thinking about it, there are a couple of ways that the Bible is misused. Um, first, it can be used to point fingers at people around you. Like if you're only using the Bible to be a moral whistleblower, then you miss the point. And let me go a step further. The church today 
is often more known for what we're against than what we're for. I mean, the reason that people aren't knocking down the doors of the church to get in is because people are tired of feeling judged every time they get near someone that calls himself a Christian. Pointing fingers, leveling accusations. Jesus addressed it in Matthew chapter seven, verse one through five. When he says, judge not, do not judge or you too will be judged. For in the same way you judge others, you will be judged. And with the measure you use it, it will be measured to you. Why do you look at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye and pay no attention to the plank in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when all the time there's a plank in your own eye? You hypocrite, first take the plank out of your own eye and then you will clearly see to remove the speck from your brother's eye. That's a little carpentry humor that, that Jesus is using. He's like, hey, you're trying to rid someone of this little thing and yet you've got this big hunk of two by four in your own eye. And it's a version of the golden rule, right? Do unto others as you would have them do unto you. It's like, hey, you gotta be real, real slow to judge. You've gotta make sure that you are right before you are judging in other people's lives. Because he said, the same way that you judge, it will be measured to you. So here's the balance of that. The balance of that is absolute truth is absolute truth. Truth is truth. And, and the truth doesn't change because 51% of the vote says that now it's no longer true. Truth does not evolve. And I, I, I've been very public about the fact that there's no such thing as your truth. That's become so popular in culture today, right? Oh, girl, you go live your truth. There's no such thing as your truth. There is the truth and your opinion, according to Ben Shapiro. So... Here's what we know for sure. Man, the culture changes all the time. But, but this truth is timeless. And so I was thinking about sexual promiscuity because that's really what's going on in this passage. Se sexual promiscuity is rampant. It is pandemic in our culture, isn't it? Whether it's premarital sex or extramarital sex. Um, I know from a uh, pre-marriage scenario, counsel a lot of couples, and I, man, so many couples today, uh, they, they wanna make sure they're compatible, right? I'm like, okay, that's convenient. Um, or extramaritally, the ends justify the means, right? I'm not happy. Uh, my, my spouse doesn't pay attention to me. And so I'm turning to, to something else. Well, here's what we know for sure. In both scenarios, all that does is heap shame on you. Why? Because it's not the way God designed sex. It's not what sex was designed for. Sex was de designed in marriage between a man and a woman. That's it. It's not even in dispute. Like, like you, you got to do a lot of gymnastics to reinterpret that bad boy. I mean, it's all over the Bible. And so it's not really even in question. And so we don't ever want to minimize truth for the sake of mercy. At the same time, truth is truth. And know this, if you have succumbed to any of that, man, I've been there.
I've been there on both counts. And so I, I've been in, in really, really uh, lost, bad situations. I am not here to condemn you or judge you. And I'm held accountable to the truth of God's word, just like you are. So here is where we need to kind of adjust our thinking. What I have found is that bullhorns on street corners is not really effective. You know, I think I've talked before, did any of you ever see the guys that would stand out on Tinseltown uh, in the woodlands on Friday nights and scream at people with the bullhorn? Yeah, um, man, I was fascinated by them. So I would stand and just listen to them as they were just like screaming people down. And uh, one night I went over while the guy took a breath and said, hey man, where are y'all from? And they're telling me, and I'm like, man, why are you so angry? <laughs> Who hurt you? And, and immediately he puts the bullhorn back up, you know, kind of puts it on my head and uses it as a platform and starts talking about the false teachers and charlatans. Um, he's talking about me. But uh, at the end of the day, I'm sure that they went home and felt like that they were martyrs in some way for the sake of Jesus when uh, the truth is they were completely ineffective because, you know, yelling at people is not necessarily the love of Jesus. Instead, you have to be willing to enter into relationship. Relationship. See, here's the biggest problem is that we look at adultery and extramarital affair, uh, premarital sex, and we look at those things as the root issues when actually they're symptoms of a bigger problem. And so what if we begin to look at what's going on in people's lives and we get curious about what's actually going on beneath the surface and we uh, sit with them and we talk with them and we ask questions. Basically, we care. What if you cared more about the person than their sin? What if you led with mercy? What if you led with, huh, I bet there's a, a lot more to this story than I know. What if that became the calling card of Jesus in their life? Because you were willing to look and listen and love and then walk them into the story of God. So uh, we use the Bible to point finger at people. Uh, second, we tend to use the Bible to pardon ourselves. We uh, use the Bible as, well, you know, somebody may point something out in your life and instead of owning it and saying, Jesus, is there any truth to it? We're pouring over the scripture to see how close to the line we can get without going over. And, and you know you, I know me, and I know that there have been seasons in my life where I would get defensive about what some, something somebody would say. And, and know this, you will never find a verse about R-rated movies in, in the Bible. They didn't have them back then, right? And so that doesn't mean that it's okay to watch gratuitous sex and violence on TV. Just because it doesn't say it explicitly in the Bible. What if you could turn to 1 Corinthians 6, 19? Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit? You have been bought with a price. Therefore, honor God with your body. Or Philippians 4, 8 that talks about all of the things that we need to dwell on, purity and goodness and things that are of good report. I mean, there are all kinds of things that we can find in the Bible that support following Jesus. We're just gonna want, we, we have to want to see it. 
But too often, we're using the Bible out of context to pardon our sin. So we point the finger while pardoning ourselves. And it's what Jesus was talking about in Matthew 7, right? That we're, that we're so concerned about the speck in someone else's eye, and yet we've got this two by four in our own. So that's where the Pharisees were. They're using the Bible. They're using the law, leveling it, trying to trap Jesus. So what does Jesus do? Well, in pure Jesus fashion, but Jesus bent down and started to ride on the ground with his finger. When they kept on questioning him, he straightened up and said to them, let any one of you who is without sin be the first to throw a stone at her. And again, he stooped down and wrote on the ground. So that's bizarre behavior. I mean, he's the embodiment of the law. They, they, they literally brought a knife to a gunfight. And now he's got this opportunity to school them, to shame them in front of all these people, to make them look really small. And instead, it says he just bends down and he starts doodling in the ground. And if you're like me, I'm wondering, what, what's he writing? Right? So there are a lot of scholars that are like, well, he was probably writing Jeremiah 23, verse 14, you know? And, and it's like, what? Based on what? Here's what we know for sure. We have no idea what he was writing. We don't know if he was writing scripture. We don't know if he was listing their sins. We don't know if he's like, hey, Fred, there on the end, uh, you were with her last night, right? I mean, we don't know what he was saying. All we know is that he's writing in the sand. What if he merely was bending down and began to write to take everyone's attention off of this woman who is sitting in her shame? He's taking on the attention at that point. Then he stands up and he says, you know what, guys, grab your stones. Let's do this. You ready? Okay. Hurl it. Oh, one caveat. Only the ones with no sin. Then he leans down and starts writing again. I mean, it's this bizarre interaction that he gives them complete permission. He's saying, hey, listen, the law says you can stone her. So let's do it. Let's get it, guys. But guess what? You gotta be sinless first. And what happens? Verse nine. At this, those who heard began to go away one at a time, the older ones first, until only Jesus was left with the woman standing there. He completely diffused the situation I think they were probably baffled at first. He wrote something that convicted them and he said something that convicted them and it said they went away one at a time. But did you find it interesting that it says the older ones first? Why did the older ones leave first? We don't really know for sure, but um, here's my thinking. The younger ones are just bloodthirsty. That they're zealous. They've been taught to be zealous. They've been taught that Jesus is public enemy number one and all of their testosterone and bravado, they're, they're ready to go. And as the older ones begin to walk away, they realize, oh wait, this is not a fight we can win. And they follow suit. And they walk away one at a time. To me, it's a picture of mentorship. 
they followed those guys in there. They followed them through this kangaroo court. They followed them into the room to grab the woman. They followed them into the temple to throw her in the middle of this chaos. They're prepared to stun her and now they're having to follow them out in a little bit of shame. They've been mentored into this. One man said this, uh, no one is born with greed, prejudice, bigotry, patriotism, and hatred. Those Those are all learned behavior patterns. Here's the truth of the matter. Um, You're mentoring your kids. You're mentoring your kids. And if your kids are a little bit older and y'all are both on social media, um, you're mentoring them on social media. You're mentoring them on life by the way you live yours. You're mentoring them on how to interact with the spouse by the way you treat your spouse. You're mentoring them on how to act when no one's looking by how you act when you think no one's looking. And this is all that's happening here. This is a learned behavior. They had learned to hate Jesus. And that's why they were so slow to move away because they were following their mentors. But look at this climactic moment. Jesus straightened up and asked her woman, Where are they? Has no one condemned you? No one, sir, she said. And neither do I condemn you, Jesus declared. Go now and leave your life of sin. Other versions, go and sin no more. So this is the thing that I love most about this passage. I love most about the nature of Jesus. And this is where it gets messy. Think about this. He publicly defended and privately challenged. Was she guilty? 100%. Did she deserve to be stoned? The law would have said yes. And in the middle of her guilt, in the middle of her shame, Jesus steps in between her and her accusers and defends her publicly. So how does that sit with your theology? Because that's a tough place to sit, right? That's where it gets messy. Where we're willing to defend those who don't deserve to be defended. And we can learn so much from Jesus here. He had compassion on a woman who was clearly in the wrong but needed mercy. So he stood toe to toe with her accusers. And after they left, after they were gone, challenged her to leave her lifestyle. And here's what I can imagine. Again, if you put yourself in this story, um, I'm more imagining, imagining her in kind of a huddled mess. She won't even look up because first of all, she's ashamed. Second of all, she knows she's about to be stoned to death because she knows she's guilty. And so this whole encounter, she's just kind of in the fetal position, ready uh, to be pelted. And here Jesus, she's probably not even aware that they've all walked away. And Jesus leans down and lifts up her face and puts eyeball to eyeball and says, hey, where are your accusers? Look, they're all gone. She looks around. Is there no one here to condemn you? Mm -mm. Then he says, hey, I don't condemn you either. Now, go and live a different life. I'm not judging you. 
I'm just inviting you to go and live a different life. Jesus is both full of grace and truth. Remember John 1.14? The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. And now the son is radiating the glory full of grace and truth, full of mercy and justice. So here are two common pictures of the church. Um, And we're seeing a growing trend today. This first example would be, uh, I I don't condemn you without go and sin no more. That we're afraid to call sin, sin, that, that we kind of want to live in this, this gray area and we want people to feel good and so we're afraid to say, hey, listen, that's wrong. That, that's, that's not how to live life. And so uh, we've got the whole, um, I don't condemn you down pat, but we're really light on the go and sin no more. But then we've got the other extreme and the other extreme says this, go and sin no more and then I won't condemn you. That we're uh, telling people to clean up their lives before they can come to Jesus. Hey, listen, you don't really look like me. Um, You don't vote like me, hello. Um, And and because you don't look like me, because you don't vote like me, because you don't smell like me, uh, we're we're not, we don't see people busting down the doors of the church because they're like, well, I don't fit there. I'm gonna feel judged when I walk in the room. What would it be like to to be a movement, to be a movement of people that say, hey, you know what? I've got to figure out this balance. So it's not, hey, clean up your life and then you can come to me. But it's also like, hey, man, I'm not here to judge you. You just do you. There's got to be something in the middle. And Jesus is giving us this third option. You're guilty. So I want you to say this with me. On the count of three, I want you to say, I am guilty. Ready? One, two, three. I am guilty. Say it like you mean it. I am guilty. Okay, doesn't that feel good? Because here's the truth of the matter. Some of you are like, well, why would you have me say that? Because you are. The Bible says that we've all sinned. Romans 3.23, we've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We've all got stuff. We're all managing brokenness. We're all managing our shame and guilt and we're scared to death of being found out. But here's the truth of the matter. We're all broken. We're all guilty. And so Jesus comes and he says, hey, listen, I wanna acknowledge your guilt and I wanna acknowledge that I don't condemn you. And then I want to invite you to leave your life of sin. I wanna invite you to just move on, think in a new way. I've got life on the other side of this for you. So here's what it is. The third option is mercy precedes judgment. What would it be like for people to experience you as a follower of Jesus, sitting with them, listening to them, asking questions, getting past whatever's going on in their life that just screams, I'm messed up, and we love them through that and we ask questions to actually get to the root. That, hey, you, yes, adultery is a problem, but there's something behind that. There's something you're medicating. Let's get to the place where you're medicating your shame and let's heal that because when we heal that, we're gonna be able to be a part of seeing your marriage healed moving forward. People with gender identity issues to getting to the root of why they are managing 
that lifestyle. Know this, the issue is almost never the issue. It's a symptom of something deeper. But we've gotta be willing to enter into those spaces. The Apostle Paul said this in Romans 2, 4. He says it's God's kindness that leads us to repentance. It's not your um, mad ability to quote scripture. Some of you have a whole lot of scripture memorized and that's awesome. We need scripture memory. I want you to know that the number one reason, the number one way that God uses scripture in your life is for you. That when you are struggling, he brings that scripture to your mind for you. Why? Because it is his kindness that leads you to repentance. And we are not the ones that do the changing. That's up to the Holy Spirit. But we can love people, we can ask great questions, and then we can gain access to their heart because they know that we care. What a different way to look at relationships. Um, Tim Keller said this, said Jesus' teaching consistently attracted the irreligious while offering the Bible-believing religious people of his day, while offending the Bible-believing religious people of his day. However, in the main, our churches today do not have this effect. The kind of outsiders Jesus attracted do not bother coming into our churches or even the most avant-garde ones. We tend to draw button-down, moralistic people, the licentious and liberated or the broken and marginal avoid church. That can only mean one thing. If the preaching of our ministers and the practice of our parishioners do not have the same effect on people that Jesus had, then we must not be declaring the same message that Jesus did. Yikes. Is that a convicting thought to anyone besides me? My time's up. <laughs> so here are a couple of things that I want you to think about today. First of all, who is it in your life that's gotten plenty of the justice of God from you but needs some of the mercy of God? You know, unforgiveness keeps us from hearing the voice of God. When we're living in unforgiveness, it actually becomes the lens by which we view the world. And for some of you, you're holding someone in judgment and you're doing it out of a sense of justice that they don't deserve your forgiveness. And know this, um, you don't deserve God's forgiveness. And so because God went first, you can bring that to the Lord and begin the process of reconciling that in your life. Because as you begin to forgive others, as you begin to walk in forgiveness, and I know this is easier uh, said than done, but as you begin to walk in forgiveness, what happens is God begins to set you free. And as he sets you free, you begin to see others the way he sees them. And maybe that's a great goal today. But here are three things I want you to think about as we close. Number one, Jesus is the full embodiment of mercy and justice. The full embodiment. 
So here's the beauty uh, of Jesus. He is Emmanuel, God with us. But here's the advantage that we have in 2022. He is not just God with us. If you have said yes to Jesus, he's actually God in you. Think about that. That's the beauty of the cross, the resurrection, the ascension, and the descension in the form of the Holy Spirit is that everyone who says yes to Jesus becomes a child of God and receives the spirit of Jesus on the inside of you. And here's the beauty of that. The beauty of that is now no longer are you having to wrestle as hard with mercy versus justice and how, do, how does that work? Well, it works as you daily are in intimacy with Jesus. He changes your affections. He begins to show you how you can live from him and not for him. Living for Jesus I know you've probably either said that or thought it before. I'm living for Jesus. That sounds great, but at the end of the day, that's, that's about you. That's about you saying, I am going to decide what it means to follow Jesus and I'm gonna try to interpret this as best I can and I'm gonna live for him. Great sentiment. But what if you begin to say, I'm gonna live from him? That I'm gonna access what is inside of me the day I said yes to Jesus he says in Matthew 5, 17, that he didn't come to abolish the law, but to fulfill the law. Hebrews 1, 3 says he is the exact representation of the Father. That means that God with us, when God is in us, he is the fullness of the law, the fullness of God. You have the fullness of God living in you. Think about that. 2 Peter 1, 3 says you have everything you need for a godly life. And so now you can begin to live from him and not just try to live for him. Living from a place of Jesus means that he's gonna change your interactions. He's gonna make you spiritually curious about why people are doing the things they're doing and giving you the courage to, to walk alongside people, ask them questions. And then at the appropriate time, lead them into a beautiful place of restoration. Number two, the Bible is a living document to be used as a template for life, not a weapon. Again, when we say in Hebrews 4.12 that it's sharper than any two-edged sword, God will most often use that two-edged sword on your life. I think we love the idea of being a warrior and going out and, and man, God's word is powerful. But know this, if God's word has not taken root in you, it doesn't matter how much you say it out here. The enemy will weaponize it in other people's lives. So it starts with you. It starts with you recognizing that it's not a weapon to be leveled at people but it is a template for your life right here, right now. Number three, publicly defend and privately challenge. Now this is very functional and very messy. So you're saying that I need to, to publicly defend the person that is in an affair right now? Well, what I'm telling you is you need to go sit with them and you need to love them. They don't need to feel judged by you. They need to feel loved by you and feel like it's a safe place for you to walk them into freedom. 
because shame will drive them away from the church, but it is the kindness of God that leads us to repentance. And so instead of going, man, that's the Titanic, I need to run from that. No, we partner with them so that we can see them healed and restored. And through relationship, remember, accountability comes with permission. A lot of us wanna hold people accountable and we have no relationship with them and all we do is push them away. What if we were more chisel and less hammer? That we publicly defend. We say, hey, listen, I don't judge you. I don't condemn you. I get it. I get it. It's hard. Tell me more. And then once we've established that relationship, then we can talk to them about where the gospel intersects with their life. We can talk to them about the, the things that are incompatible with the follower of Jesus. We walk them into truth. But we do it from a place of love. This is what happens when Jesus comes on the scene. Emmanuel, God with us. It's counterintuitive, right? Easy to say, hard to live, but it is the life that Jesus is inviting you into. Because it's the life that changes the world. And as we're in this Christmas season, again, people come to church on Christmas Eve more than any other time during the year, right? Besides Easter. You have the opportunity to live in such a way that people are like, hey, I'm intrigued by your life. I would love to come to church with you. Maybe today you think about people and you're like, man, I've really blown it with this person. Sometimes the, the greatest thing you can do is go, hey, I've really blown it with you. Will you forgive me? I've not, I've not, I did not do this well. To have the humility to say I was wrong whew, could be the calling card of Jesus in someone's life.